0: Thank you for coming. I'm Crystal. And welcome to the Denver Press Club and to our talk about artificial intelligence. And a quick round of applause for our great panel, who all donated their time just to come and talk about it. Thank you. Okay, of course, we have Jim Gunderson, who is a Analytics guy, knows a ton about cognitive neuroscience and software, which is kind of rare, right?
1: You know, it was a challenge when I was doing my PhD, convincing the computer scientists that I needed to go across grounds to talk to the guys in the neurophys and the rest <laughs> of that. Um, so yeah, it's. Uh, but you're seeing, I think you're seeing more of it now because it's very clear that whatever we have up here seems to be a good working model of what smart is. So maybe we should pay attention to it. Absolutely, great point.
0: All right, David Meyer. Data scientist, uh, been in it through the very beginning, right? The very beginning.
2: Um, yeah, well, you know, the very beginning is a
0: long time. <laughs> <laughs> we need the mic.
2: Depending on what your definition of the very beginning is, um, I, I started working in data science uh, back when I was working in systems integration in the 90s and trying to help my employer corner the market on Pentium servers. So um, it's it's been a long road, but uh, a fun one. And I ended up with... Uh, uh, British research and analysis house called Nelson Hall, where I'm the principal analyst for AI and RPA, and delighted to be here with you guys tonight.
0: Thank you so much. Next is Maximilian Unfried from Germany.
3: Hi guys. Um, I actually didn't fly all the way from Germany here. I was already in the US before. I was trying to dramatize it. Come
0: <laughs> so on. Come on, give me a, give me a, a little, drama. S- little drama here.
3: Um, yeah, actually, my background is in I studied biofics, biophysics when I was younger and from there I had like the neuroscience background But I thought well okay now that I kind of understand or try to understand how the brain works, let's see how we can transfer that to machines and that's somehow what brought me into AI and I was like studying like all those natural language processing parts with my thesis more towards um, facial expression recognition and then worked afterwards with natural language processing and now i'm here in beautiful colorado starting or having my own startup and we do computer vision for plant disease detections um, yeah, that's, that's kind of amazing approach.
0: by the way so he designed a software that looks for mold and pests before they show up because the human eye is apparently not as good as a computer at finding that that's pretty amazing
4: I'm Jason Zucker, I'm the CEO of Human Input Output, and we're sort of on the opposite side of AI, trying to make brains better, um, and catching up to AI with technology. Um, so I work mo- mostly with quantified EEG, um, looking at brain, you know, the summation of brain electricity, and comparing it to a database of other brains to try to simulate what a normal brain might be, and then figuring out stuff like uh, uh, resolving dyslexic errors, um, stuff like that. And then also executive coaching for people who want to be more creative and sleep better and stuff like that. So um, I think it's important that we, we chase the other side of that, which is catching brains up to AI before it becomes an issue. So thanks for having me.
5: I'm going to try and use the second mic.
4: Awesome. Amazing. Okay. It looks like this
5: one works. Uh, I work for a company called Universal Mind. Um, we focus on where the machine breaks the, or where the machine meets the, the human interaction. Um, my role for them is doing UX and UX is this idea of user experience. So making sure that in the end, when the machine pumps out something that's really insightful, the human can actually digest it and turn it into something uh, actionable.
0: This is Tyler Mary, by the way, who's a UX technologist, right? It's even greater than like a designer. You're, you're senior in your field, right? Yep. Totally. Yes. He knows everything about the sentiments you feel when you're browsing through websites, applications, other types of sort of animations and online animations, right?
5: Yeah, I think that would be an ideal state for anyone in the UX field. The goal would ultimately be to on the negative side manipulate a human into taking a certain action or on the positive side encourage them to take a a positive action, but ultimately that is the responsibility of the UX designer on the project.
0: Fantastic. Um, So they got they. Introduce themselves really well. I'm just gonna go through the basic format really quick just so we're familiar and everyone knows kind of how we're gonna roll Um, We're gonna go through some question rounds, which Jim has so well put together here. So organized Mm. Um, We just went through our introduction. Obviously the first round will be on AI and natural language, right? Uh, Watson terminator and the turing test and We're gonna talk about current capabilities and where we are on the turing scale which is interesting, good to always sort of check up back with uh, his original thought experiment about how uh, computing works and how do we detect intelligence and uh, sort of how, if humans can actually uh, beat detection where computers can, either, either. Uh, the Second round, uh, we're gonna talk about uh, the question is, can you detect a computer in 140 characters? A bot,
5: 280, he fixed it,
0: okay. And kind of a bot, really, because this is like a social media bot almost, right? And this is a reference to Twitter. Um, news, fake news, chat bots, and the soundbite landscape with content. Uh, then we'll have a question round at that point, so everyone can sort of refresh and ask questions in the first two rounds. The third round will be can you get me an update before it happens? That's data science, right, David? I think it is. Pretty much. We can
2: certainly, uh, ask
0: Okay, um, <laughs> uh, with, large, with large sets of data, you can often predict where the most likely situation and cluster of information will be, so I think that's interesting. Um, and you know, we have a real demand and need for speed, right, so we're always trying to figure out what's happened before it's happened, um, and this is not only just a computer science related thing, it's also to do with our human interest in being always updated. Uh, even though I think people complain about it a lot, everyone really loves that you can do practically anything from your phone. You can pay your bills, you can meet your spouse, you can <laughs> find a job, you can do there, almost anything.
1: There are still a few things that you don't want to use the phone as an uh,
0: intermediate <laughs> <But>, service. Uh, yes. <laughs> but just wait. <laughs> Um, And then the the fourth round is, is there a light at the end of the funnel? I've changed this as a play on words. Uh, (laughs) He says tunnel, I say funnel. Uh, Or is it a self-driving car that's coming at us? It's a little scary. Everyone's a little scared about the autonomous driving, self-driving cars, right? It's a little scary. Tiny bit, tiny bit. Uh, And then we'll have some audience questions, and then we'll just wrap up with Q&A. So I'm going to get out of the way and let these guys talk, because they're the experts. Thank you very much.
1: hi i 'm Jim G and I do AI um, i'm glad to see that we've got a good group and i'm glad I just want to thank the press Club for hosting this because it is it's topical there are a lot of of amazing levels of back and forth and argument and discussion about AI, about how it's going to affect the world, about how we get our information and what does that mean in terms of where is it coming from and can we trust it? And so the whole fake news comes in there. And I think one of the key points on here that we'll touch later on is this idea of an economy, an economic system that is literally based on the fact that you have to check your phone. I mean, that's what we're living in. How many of you check the news once today? All right. How many of you check the news three or four times a day? How many of you have your phone, like mine just did, set to go bing when something interesting happens? That's an amazing change in how we live. I mean, it used to be the morning paper or the evening paper, if you were lucky enough to live in a town with two papers, which we used to be lucky enough to live in, but we'll go back to that later. Um, (laughs) It so dramatically changes how we interact with the world and the events in the world. And AI plays a powerful, powerful role in that. And I hope we'll, during the discussion, find out more about that. But first, let's talk about what AI is and what the state of the art is. Now, two things, Um, you have probably gathered by now that I am not all that formal. And I'm going to impose that on our panel, so those of you who are very formal, I deal with it. Um, If you hit, AI is a huge field, AI is huge. If you hit things that just don't make sense, maybe there's a word that doesn't resonate for you that you don't have. Go ahead and holler out a question while we're talking. We may say, great point, we're gonna hold on that for a little bit, but honestly, if you're in puzzle, probably half the people sitting around you are puzzled, so you would be very kind to do them a favor and actually say, excuse me, what the heck does that mean? So, given those ground rules, and, and we'll move forward on that, the basic idea is AI language, language ties in because natural language has always been a characteristic that we as humans use to differentiate ourselves from non-linguistic intelligences. I mean, dogs don't talk much, crows don't talk much, parrots, maybe. AI language, and what does that mean in terms of intelligence? If it can talk and build a fire, is it sentient, is it awake, is it alive, is it aware? Or does it not have to talk? So, I'd like to start at that end of the panel with the question of Basically, what does AI have to do with language, and what does language do in terms of defining AI?
5: I mean, I think language is our universal method of communication. We have some sort of pictures that we use from time to time, but more or less, I'm speaking to you in words, um, you're receiving mm-hmm. words, and then you're converting those to thoughts in your mind. Uh, when it comes to AI, this whole idea of the, the human and the computer interacting, that's always been a part where we need to speak to the computer on the computer's terms. If you want a computer to do something, you better learn how to code, or you better learn how to interact with the computer on those grounds. As we keep improving that process, and we keep making that a little bit more seamless, we get closer to the point where the computer becomes either an extension or a separate being or entity. um, And I think that's the space that we're starting to enter into.
4: Um, I'd I'd say that that language is one of the primary accelerators of human civilization at every point when we first learned hey can you pass me that thing over there and saved a few minutes Um, or don't go in there you'll die. Um, I saw another guy go in there and he died um, to I'm going to print this message and get it out to lots and lots and lots of people. Um, to now I'm going to instantly get it to your phone and it may or may not be true because we've got people figuring out what you may or may not believe um, I think that you know language not uh, beyond our being our ability to communicate with AI and vice versa um, it's it's still fundamental to what AI is because we're still talking about representing concepts with words or uh, uh, symbols or connections or Any of those things—it's still—it's a fundamental aspect of what AI is. um, But it's going to uh, the the line between what what people think is intelligence in language is going to blur entirely, Um, especially when I do things like put an EEG on a dog head and go, "Oh, look! It wants something explicit, right?" I can tell on the screen, and all I need to do is connect that to a voice database. Now the dog is talking. Right, so maybe dogs can talk in the next few years. Um, so it's, it's who knows? They're not just
1: gonna say Steve all
4: the time. Yeah, it might, it might. I, I don't know. Um, but it'd be, it'd be cute, you know. So. Cool.
3: Well, I look at it a little bit from a different direction. I mean, what is language for us? As humans, we have like two parts of language. One is like our spoken language, which is just translated into like those waves of sound and they hit your ear when I'm speaking. And then somehow through chemical processes it's like, processed in your brain, right? And similar to written language, you just like have the sense of our eyes, and to that it goes to our brain, and we somehow connect the words that we read or hear with like some concept that might be actually quite abstract in our brain. For computers, they don't really see it in words. I mean, when we type something into a computer, this is pretty much translated into numbers. and the idea that we are talking about is working with those numbers, and not with those words itself. And I think this is in a way like a different concept than we work, that you could say that our brain is like just a big computer, but probably it's like much more complex and complicated than that, right? It's like not just ones and zeros. And that's the way that I see that how we differ, like the entire processing of the language, be it written or with sound. Um, is something that we have to tackle, and that might be, it's not even clear to us how we work in that way, and it's gonna be like a further process to really see how computers actually work with that.
2: Now I'm stuck on the dog EEG thing, and now I have like Rick and Morty going in my head about the <laughs> dog with the exoskeleton. Um, just to sort of further on what Max said, one of the things about, computer, about AI with, in its relation to language that I think is utterly fascinating is we have the sense that an AI would process language or that an AI would approach language um, in any sense in the way that we do. <clears throat> and in reality it doesn't. You're giving uh, an intelligence a task and you're saying I want you to comprehend the meaning behind these printed physical symbols. And what happens as a result of that is an AI will go through the the most efficient process possible to doing so. So great sort of story about that. Um, Google had, a in one of Google's many, many AI experiments in in language and translation, um, they they built a a translator that was designed to go back and forth between two languages. One was Romanian. I don't remember the other one. It was definitely an Asian. Um, And of course, in this country, we sort of have the sense if you're a native English speaker, that English would be the sort of the turning hub for how you do this. You would take Romanian into English and English into, let's just say Chinese. And the Google AI wanted nothing to do with this, and they, they went off and left it alone for two days working on this problem and came back to discover it had invented its own language to go back and forth between these two. wanted nothing to do with English. It coded its own cycle-based knowledge ontology for doing this. And uh, the Google researchers didn't understand the intermediate language it was using. Because it had designed its own rules for it, it was more efficient to do it that way. So what we'll see, and I know Turing is, is sort of a component of this, AIs are generally closer to passing the Turing test in many senses than we are necessarily to sometimes understanding how they're working in specific task areas, which I think is pretty interesting. Cool.
1: So. I'm going to do one, one audience participation and panel participation point here, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about the Turing test. Okay, first, everybody put your hands out like this, All right? Thumbs up, we're going to do the modern, not the old school. Thumbs up is good, thumbs down is bad, okay? So which robot is smarter? Oh, sorry, let me rephrase this as an up-down. C-3PO is smarter than R2-D2. Agree, disagree? Ooh. Panel? Okay, okay, so the difference between those two bots, obviously, is one of them speaks 10,000 whatever languages, the other one whistles, beeps, and chirps. But, of course, if you look at the actual actions, which one gets them out of all the trouble? To what degree is language correlated to intelligence? So this goes to the Turing test, And, and since Crystal actually used the words the original Turing test, I'm going to actually tell you about the original Turing test. Anybody know, anybody know what the Turing test is in general? Okay. So the current version, the, the politically correct version of the Turing test is that you go into a room, you have a teletype or, or a console or a chat window, and on the other side is something. Might be a human, might be a machine. You interact with it. You type on your side, it types back. You type on your side, it types back. And at the end of it, you make a decision. <clears throat> thumbs up, thumbs down. Was that a human? So the politically correct version of the Turing test is that if 50% of the judges go thumbs up, then that, that computer program fooled enough people so that it is human level intelligence. Let us roll back about uh, 30 more years maybe 40 more years there was this party game that they used to do and it was sort of popular in the risque set in the in the early 1900s in which a man and a woman would go into the closet this is not where coming out of the closet came from Um, and questions would go in and answers would come out and the question was could you determine whether it was a man answering as a man or was it a woman pretending to be a man and answering as though she were male? So it's this whole gender-bending thing. And Turing explained it as, well, we needed deception on both sides, right? You had to have deception because otherwise one would be lying and the other would be telling the truth and that might give something away. But basically the idea is, can the computer fool you through an extended interaction into believing it is a human being. That's the Turing test. There's a Loebner Prize which runs every year. Um, if you ever want a, um, an amazingly soul-satisfying belief that human beings are powerful and omnipotent and intelligent creatures, go look at some of the dialogues from the Loebner Prizes. They publish them all. They're um, not really all that impressive in terms of human-level intelligence, so nobody wins a lot of money. But that's the basic idea. Can a machine fool you into thinking it's a person? That becomes almost our de facto standard for an intelligent, intelligent AI. So panel, is it a good test? If so, why? Is it a bad test? If so, why? Let's start at this end, Dave.
2: Um, so this was this goes back to what what Alan Turing really wanted to do was, Um, He was sort of looking at this, this idyllic version of AI coming out to be something that could interact as a peer with humanity. We now know that AI works differently than that, and I I told you a little bit about that in my comments previously, but one of the things that's, that's sort of changed since Turing worked in this area is we now sort of, the applications that AI is being put to in many senses, we don't necessarily care whether it's an AI or not and one of the ones that i work very closely in is chatbots which are you know sort of coming into vogue in customer interaction environments where you know if if i need to go on and change a password do i want to wait in a queue for 10 minutes for a human being on a phone to change my password or do i really mind some bot deployed by a central it stack just popping a window up and saying dave it looks like you fat fingered your password for the 38th time this month would you like to change your password I go sure Am I talking to a chatbot? Probably. Do I care? No. Am I gonna have a Turing test moment with this where I go, you know, (laughs) what's your favorite baseball team? We're not gonna spend a whole lot of time as people interacting with AIs, necessarily wondering if it's human-like when it's serving the task that we need it to, I guess is the best way that I can put that. So I guess the curiosity level about Turing isn't necessarily going down. But in terms of the general intelligence sort of AI that gets discussed in Turing, we're not anywhere close to a general intelligence AI right now, just in terms of doing sort of taxonomy. And and, and we have what I'd call a lot of really good task AIs. So we have great autonomous car AI. We have great image recognition AI. We have great... uh, (laughs) Let's see, a great chatbot sort of AI. But if you took any one of those AIs and gave it something else to do, it would be a miserable failure. So if we took, for instance, a chatbot and put it in image recognition or autonomous driving, it would call everything fried chicken and drive your car into a wall. You don't want that. General AI right now, I think the accepted level of competency is about that of a hamster. So (laughs) we're nowhere really close to having a Turing test being passed. But I guess, like I said, the evolution of the question is what concerns me more. Is are we interested in it anymore?
3: Well, the way I see this, like I mean, when Turing last was developing this kind of test and intuition, I think this is like, I wasn't born then. I think most people here weren't born then. Um, and I think at that time they worked much more with like trying to almost hard code things, right? And so nowadays we use like some, let's call it advanced algorithms, some mathematical wizardry in a way, that allows us to do things they could barely imagine at that time. And those things we currently do are in a way very limited to like one <coughs> or two tasks that they can pre- perform very well. And I'm convinced that if we have an AI for only one task, in the near future those, those computers will become way better than humans on this one specific task but there's no chance that like, one kind of set of algorithms will like, outperform every human and every other task. So for example, I mean, there are like, already image recognition competitions out there where computers are better than humans. Um, and I guess in the same way, if you would have like a Turing, lang- a Turing test for language, I think it's not that far away that we could see a chatbot being as capable of a human of fooling you, depending on kind of the conversation we have. Um, so I would always say like this Turing test is kind of a little bit too weak for nowadays and we probably have to come up with like new measures, like how we really evaluate, like what we would consider general AI, like that we have like one machine that outperforms us on several tasks that are not related at the same time.
4: Um, I'd say that it's, it's neither good or bad, but I'd say it's, it's important in, uh, the sense that, that we're going to have to interact with AIs that we're comfortable interacting with at some point. Um, I mean, my mom would never interact with something that she thought was a robot, right? She wouldn't. I mean, she doesn't hate robots. She knows I love robots, um, but she's not going to be comfortable with that. And I think that that's where it matters. It matters where people are comfortable interacting with it, whether, whether it's a personal advocating AI that's just like, oh, I'm keeping an eye out for discounts that you like and I'm, you know, watching out for the type of spam you get sent and I'm just advocating for you. People are gonna wanna anthropomorphize that and feel a trust with that. Same with, with, with self-driving, um, you know, I totally anthropomorphized every car I've ever had, but never as much as I have with a self-driving car. So it's, it's, uh, it's important where you're interacting with it as a human. Beyond that, I don't think it matters at all. Um, if, if, if something passes the Turing test, and it doesn't interact with a human being, it's not doing its job, you know? Which, uh, to speak to your point, it's, it's, it's not doing the task it was assigned to do, so why are you spending all those resources? And when you're talking about resources, like com- the human brain compared to a computer, we're talking the, the same amount of processing can be done with 20 watts in a, in, in a human brain versus 20 million with, with uh, circuitry. Um, so it's, you, you, it's a waste of time anywhere that you're not talking about interacting with somebody or manipulating somebody, whether that's for the, their good or their bad.
5: Awesome. Um, so as far as I know, there have been machines that beat it. And a lot of them use like mind hacks in order to do it. So they'll say like, hey, I'm a Ukraine, the computer will say, hey, I'm a 13 year old Ukrainian kid who's trying to learn English. And then that process sort of puts the human mind at ease. And it's sort of cheating the process or I view it as cheating because it's not like speaking to an equal. It's like switching the relationship around. I mean, I think that really drives home this idea of like, why are we doing this? What is the the ultimate point of, of this conversation happening. Um, I think there's also a lot to be said for like very specific tasks. What exactly are we trying to solve? And um, because of like the uncanny valley, which is this idea that the closer you get to being human-like, the more obvious it is, um, it makes it hard. And when the, the Turing test was originally created, I, I think, uh, the uncanny valley wasn't really a, an idea in place. So there wasn't this concept of like, oh, this this human is getting close, therefore it's good. Um, that's what they thought at that time. Now we realize like the closer it gets to being real, the weirder it is. Whenever you see like a robotic face that's got gestures, there's always something that's just a little bit off. Like you look at the skin and it's like moving in a weird way, and instantly it creeps you out so much more than like an iPad screen with like a stick figure face on it. All of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, it's so cute. Look at that like emoji poop. That's ama- adorable. Um, so it like drives home this idea of like the closer we try to get to human the more we realize it's not human and And pushes us ultimately farther away from our goal, which is building things that help us not building things like us I don't think we want to be Gods per se we just want to be able to like do things easier <laughs>
1: What was that, Don? A protest speak Yeah <laughs> <laughs>
2: Aspiring okay. deities, please this side of the room. Thank you.
1: <laughs> so, so for those of you who aren't familiar with the idea of the uncanny valley, it was developed um, oh, about 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago now. And the idea was that as we got robots that were like R2-D2, we were all comfortable with them. As the robots got closer and closer to humanoid, a weird thing happened. They became more and more distasteful. In fact, you saw it on a couple of people on the panel when we were talking about the ones with the human-like face and the skin. There's almost this visceral response that you get because it's close, but it's not close enough. Now, the theory is if you get up the other side of this distaste or this comfort valley, they'll become, you know, you can't tell them apart. They're perfectly comfortable. We're good with that. Nobody's actually gotten out of the real valley yet, so we're still guessing. But there seems to be an innate thing in our makeup that says close, but not close enough is other. Other is bad and scary. And that kind of touches back on the Terminator model and worse than just the T1, but that, uh, which one was it that had the the reconfiguring human skin thing, T-1000 or something like that, where... Yeah, I mean, there's this, if it's perfect, it's perfect. And if it gets slightly off, it's really scary. And th- you can map this back to um, anthropological reasons in terms of tribe and others from the tribe and danger and all that kind of stuff. But as a human, as a species, we seem to have this built in that says closer, but not close enough, is worse and worse and worse and worse. So if you really want to have a freaked out, really uncomfortable lunch period, next time, go look at some of the humanoid, especially the Japanese ones, the Japanese humanoid robots. Hit YouTube, you'll get a dozen of them, and you will find that you will look at these things, and you will have a visceral response to them. Whereas if you look at R2-D2 or something like that, where it's not even close to humanoid, or as you said, a stick figure, it doesn't trigger an emotional response, which leads to this kind of you know, where do we want to go on the robotic side, on the physical side, on the not-physical side, on the in intellectual side, a couple of things came up, and, and I'm really glad that the panel brought them up, because we're going to start moving forward into the idea of presenting yourself and faking. We're going to touch on fake news in a little bit, but before we get there, we've got to lay some groundwork. So can you detect a computer? in 280 characters. The Turing test requires a sustained interaction, so it's back and forth and back and forth, and when they say something, you can respond to that, and you can take a tweak on it, and you can put a pun in there, and you can do this stuff. But if you just have 280 characters or 140 characters, can you tell whether it was generated by a machine or a person? Some background, just to feed the crowd here. Um, there's an entire industry now in taking financial and sports reports. Oh, how many people in the crowd are journalists or associated in the journalistic side of things? Cool. There is an entire field of, of employment, well, not employment, for machines that will take the little box scores from a high school baseball game or we'll take the data that comes from a quarterly report from a company that's publicly traded and has to be published and turn it into a story. In fact, for many, if you get if you your feed from AP, almost none of those stories were touched by a human being. They are all generated by machines. And that's because there used to be huge rooms full of desks and typewriters or teletypes where people did nothing but look at this report that said, and company X reported that, their earnings were less than, and this resulted in, and the CEO explained it as, and it was totally formulaic. And so a company uh, 10 years ago um, started automating this process. It has now been acquired and reacquired. and. Almost all of that dull, report, boring reporting stuff is machine-generated because you can template it. Say that again. <laughs> wait, wait, that was good. Say that again. They also don't know how to spell. <laughs> you know, this is another question. We've actually, so as a disclaimer, our... It's very, short, though it's very phonetic. Yes, it's very phonetic, yeah. Very, it's, it's, it was designed originally by type-setters in English, at least. Yep. <laughs> So as a disclaimer, our company actually writes AIs that generate content for social media and things like that, so I'm a little biased. But um, the question is, in a short interaction, a headline, a tweet, a Facebook post, can you discern whether it's generated by a human or a machine? Panel? Who wants to start? I'm gonna break up this whole back and forth thing so that people can jump in. And as I pointed out, if you got questions, feel free to jump in with them. So who wants to take a shot at this
3: one? Go for it, I Max. can start with it. Actually, in my last company where I was working, we were pretty much trying, we got access to all of the Twitter data and like a lot of news articles and other things. We were trying to figure out which of all those data shared in the internet is actually relevant for the financial markets. Because you have like people like Donald Trump who can Put out a tweet on there, and it can move the stock market, right? And you have like a lot of finance analysts that actually um, try to write in a tweet what's going on in the stock market, so that you maybe can use it for prediction. And you have like hundreds of thousands of bots out there who try to imitate those people, and those bots becoming very, very good. It's actually really hard to um, detect them, and um, because they're grammatically they are correct. Um, just what they're sometimes giving away from them might not be entirely true, but um, sometimes it's also just in a way manufactured that they just say, okay, um, I have a tweet and they have like a base structure and I just like change the company out of it. And I mean, with tweets like that, you can, on one way, you can propagate relevant information but you could also like tank the entire stock price of a company and we tried actually to only use like those 140 characters to identify what was a bot and what, was what is not a bot and it's very, very hard. So luckily Twitter gives you like a lot of, lot of other information, right? They give you the profile where the tweet is coming from so you can actually see how many tweets is this profile actually shooting out, right? Um, where is it, a second is, a where, where is it located, right? <laughs> so um, those things actually help way more than the text itself more like the behavior of the bot than what the bot um, is actually writing.
2: Or when they tweet from Volgograd, because that's, that's a good <laughs> hint. Um, this is an interesting question, and I think part of it goes toward the question of who is you in this question. So, I, th- I think many of us, especially those of us who talk frequently to our sitting president, have noticed, a phenol- I talk frequently to our sitting president, justina. <laughs> <you seen it. laughs> yeah. If you go, what's that? Does he respond? No. I do, like the guy, I do like the guy on Twitter who treats our sitting president's tweets as if they are personal text messages to him. If you haven't seen this guy, you need to go find this guy. He li- I don't know, but I've got to find him because he tweets back. He goes, he goes, sorry, Donald, I just saw this now. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, but if you've noticed, if you, if you are a, a frequent communicator with our sitting president, what you'll find is You'll tweet something, and immediately, I mean within the space of, of 15 seconds, you'll be jumped by 15 accounts, all of whom disagree with you vehemently. Um, it, it's, of course, it's nonsense, but I think the loss in our, in our society is not whether I can detect it, but whether everyone can detect it. Because if you're being silenced in your communications on social media, by a farm in Vogelgrad that's spitting out 300 tweets per second and just going around and trying to actively silence people. That's a tremendous loss to the communication structure of our democracy. So the question, can you detect a computer? I can by this point, but I work in the field. I, you know, I, I see all this happen. I've got programs up like commune.it and, and TweetDeck that, that help me sort and organize that. Um, I'm not sure everybody has access to those or uses those, and if you don't, um, the, the answer can be no, very easily.
1: Jump in just for a second, Tyler. I, uh, this is something I need to point out. This is a non-political um, discussion here. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was I was at a conference, uh, a workshop put on by NIST several years ago, and um, we had to do a an intervention. Um, once the uh, once the discussion started bringing up the assassination of Comrade Stalin, we decided it had shifted far enough off <laughs> the focus of AI and measuring intelligence, and an intervention was called for. So. I think it's a good point, but, but let's focus on the A.I. side, not the Donald Trump side. <laughs>
5: <laughs> awesome. Um, so I think machine learning and um, genetic algorithms are really, really good at one thing or maybe a couple things all in the same vein of improving on a metric. You give it a metric and it gets better at it. If the ultimate goal is, hey, I want people to believe that I'm a human and I want people to click on this link, machines will get better at that. If you give them long enough, if you give them enough people either clicking or not clicking on that link they will improve and that's why we see so many tweets coming from certain sources it's because they're just running tests and improving and getting better and they're able to learn so much faster um the time it takes us to compose a good tweet is infinity longer than a machine that's just churning them out and making slight alterations and repeating this. Um, and this may be jumping on to the next topic of this talk, the attention economy. Um, but the ultimate goal of these machines is to get you to click on an ad or get you to click on a website that gets them more ad views and ultimately generate money. And I think the the question we as people in this space should be asking ourselves is, what is the metric we want to be teaching machines to be good at? Is it, hey, how can I get more ad dollars? Or, hey, how can I do whatever? But we, we ultimately need to be thinking about that from an ethical point of view. Like, what is the ultimate goal of machine learning? And I, I really hope that it's not sell more ad dollars, but.
4: Um, this may be a temporary solution, but what if we switch Twitter to haiku? So it was, so it's five syllables, seven syllables, and then five syllables that contains an epiphany because I don't think AI I is love doing this epiphany plan. yet, right? Yeah. But I mean, that's the best idea I have. But I know that it's, it's we're, we're in a, I'm sorry? That would be a fun challenge. It, yeah, well, people will get good at it, I think. Yeah. And it's, uh, uh, you know, it would all be poetry. Um, yeah. So we might, some people might quiet down a little bit if it had to be poetry, um, but uh, it's, it's one of those things where we ha- we we kind of have to learn to detect this bullshit we have to we um, where i mean wh- whatever political side you're on uh... false information is is detrimental uh... to decision making to you know every aspect of life so if we don't find a way to start detecting fake news we're, we're in big trouble um, and i think that what the unfortunate side is we don't we don't have to convince everybody like you're saying it's just we just have to convince what is perceived as a majority, and that's it. Things change. Um, so I think it's we're, we're in a dangerous space, and it's it's it's. I'm wondering if 280 is going to help us, like if we can fit a little more humanity into another 140 characters. Um, but um, I hope so because it's it's scary. <laughs> How much BS there is on, on it. I don't even look at Twitter anymore. Cool. Yeah. yeah.
5: yeah. Uh, could I jump in with a quick question? Do we think it's even possible for? uh, humans to ever catch up to machines. Once a machine passes a human in knowledge, be it in a video game or writing a tweet, do we think that humans will eventually be able to be like, Oh yeah, I can detect that is a machine or do we need to write machines to detect?
4: It, it, that totally depends on, on how well we integrate the machines to the people. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be machines, but then again, we're, the, the, the definition is gonna blur when we start integrating the machine's information into our own brains. So, when we go from looking at a screen to just being aware of a piece of information because we can input it directly, it sounds like science fiction, but that is not as far away as you guys would think. Um, th- is that the machine or is that us just getting better because, you know, just the same way we, we, we can go out in the cold with our clothes, we've just made ourselves a little better with technology. You know?
0: Donald, do you have a question? Let me get to the mic. Let me see. So we record. We're recording this, everybody. Okay. Sorry, I don't have to tell you Colorado to say loud. Doesn't tell me I have to tell you. So. Change
1: have to. your name. Bob. I have to speak sensibly then. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay, name's Don Frazier, and I
3: do not recall your name. At the, at the oh. right end, your okay, left, yeah. my yes. right. Thank you. Okay. First, I have an announcement. I was handed a note proclaiming that Virginia is a win.
4: Exciting. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> well,
1: hooray for our side.
3: OK. okay so so uh, you are raising a very good point uh, about the importance of policy that recognizes the engagement of the user in the system. The click is perhaps not the most nuanced form of doing that. Are we looking at other forms which capture more subtle types of engagement other than, oh, yeah, click.
5: I would love to live in a world where that's the situation. I think we need to, as like people participating in business, we need to encourage a, a higher degree of engagement. Um, if, if all we're ca- capturing is click or ad views or even conversions on did someone buy your widget, I think we're, we're ultimately heading in the wrong direction. But I think we're really entering this weird space where uh, what's best for the business is definitely not what's best for humanity as a whole. Um, and as someone who like normally has probably less popular, more libertarian leanings. Um, I I think we're at this weird, weird crossroad where my personal beliefs are now heading in the other direction where where what used to work is no longer going to work. And we need to start focusing on what's best for the individual, not what's best for the business. Because I think once that cat is out of the bag, we can't put it back in. So once we start, once we stop focusing on clicks and purchases and instead we start focusing on like consumption of important media or understanding a complicated, Uh, process. Um, Until we do that, we're going to be heading down a very rough road.
0: Um, Just to interject there slightly, I think officially that the like is the least cool metric now. (laughs) The the like, how many people here like stuff?
1: I always wow it. Everybody (laughs)
0: likes, raise all your hands, you all like things. (laughs) Okay, that just means that that, that whoever it is that hosts the content will send you more content. That's all that it means. It doesn't mean you actually like something. It just means that you want to see more of that same content. But so the uh, the sharing is probably the most serious also, um, of metric. There's, a, there's pers-
1: a wonderful set of studies that were done. Louise, the stress studies with the appearance of control, probably in the um, early 2000s, maybe the late 1990s, where they, they gave people a button and put them in very stressful situations and told them that if they hit the button, it would improve things. Now the button did not- Just generally, right? Just general improvement? Okay. No (laughs) effect on the
0: environment
1: or anything. But when they clinically measured the metrics of stress, blood chemistry, blah, 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 the people who had a button and felt that they could make a choice were far less stressed than the people who didn't have a button, even though the button didn't do anything. So you give lots of choices and it makes them feel they're
0: This is my theory that stress has nothing to do with reality.
1: Okay, so questions.
0: Please, please speak into the microphone so we can record this. Sorry about that. Please, please.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Uh, This young, this lady has a a question.
1: We got one, two, three, four.
0: Hey everyone, my name is Andrea, just moved back to Denver. Really happy to find this community. I work at LinkedIn, I'm in tech and wanted to be listening here. I was watching an interview on Charlie Rose a couple months ago with Bill Gates. And I remember Bill Gates saying, in 30 to 50 years, he believes that robots will control will control humans, and the only humans that will have control are the humans that know how to control the robots. And so what I'd love to hear from the panel is, number one, do you agree with that? And number two is, what are your thoughts? Fabulous question. That's so great.
4: That's pretty much what my business is about. Um, we look for actionable insights, things in your life that we can respond to to benefit you. Um, but it's it's that's where we're going. Um, the amount of so we we're, were talking about how our our output right now is clicking like, which can mean anything. I click like on something. I'm like I'm acknowledging your situation. Like doesn't have anything to do with that. But that's that's my uh, my output. Um, but now we're starting to wear smartwatches. Computer vision is getting better, um, which means that that behavioral information and biometric information is finding its way up the ladder to Facebook and to uh, other companies. And they're gonna start responding to things like stress really directly. Um, So finding the time when you're gonna be the most open to hearing a certain type of message in the day. Or maybe finding correlates in your heart rate variation on your Apple Watch and saying, oh, you know what? That guy's probably got a lot of oxytocin going through his blood. He's likely to trust our message right now. So let's send him that ad right now. Um, I would say, just based on how badly our brains uh, uh, make mistakes with misinformation, we're gonna be led down whatever path uh, the interests with the robots wanna lead us down. Um, And the people who are controlling those robots, like I said, if we we can avoid um, going down the path where it's just advertising getting better and better and better and better, um, we might do some really wonderful things for people, Um, like prevent behavioral outbursts for people who are on the autistic spectrum, predicting that with sensors and then intervening and then them not going down a path to institutional, ugh, man, institutionalization. Um, there are things that we can do to, to make lives better, but I think uh, uh, right now it'd be strongly headed towards a path of just manipulating people. Um, and like I said, that's what I do. We're looking for the minimum effective dose in behavioral change. Um, and for me, that's to make people better, fitter, sleep better, more creative, whatever it is, um, that whatever that is their goal is. But Advertisers want one thing. I mean, they want the, the click-throughs. They want they want you to buy the thing that they're trying to get you to buy, um, which isn't a isn't always bad, and it might not be bad. Maybe they'll be like, "Oh, look, this guy needs heart medication. Let's advertise to him some heart medication," and like, because we can't just tell his doctor. So we'll we'll throw him some hints oh, and maybe save his too. life. You know, yeah. <laughs> but we'll, I mean, we'll we'll see what benefits and doctors come out. But yeah, we're we're going to be hugely at the whim of the people who own the machines. So uh, when we did a
1: robotics company, my motto was always, get a robot now and treat it really, really well. Because come the revolution, you want one of those machines to say, don't vote him or her off the island.
0: And just to respond to that, um, really interesting, I heard an anecdote, and it's from TechCrunch, um, which I'm not sure exactly if it's true, but Facebook apparently had an artificial intelligence that was rewriting its own software because it was, it was self-correcting itself. They shut it down because they were scared of what it was doing. So artificial intelligence learns from itself. That's what's really interesting about it. I think that that's actually human intelligence, learning from error, and error is a purposeful thing, not as a thing that's imperfect, but as a, uh, a benchmark or a baseline for further improvement or another iteration. This gentleman here had a question. I just want to make sure we get to everyone who's yep. interested.
4: Uh, Last week, representatives from the major social media companies
2: spoke before Congress and I'm curious if you think that we have reached an environment where uh, our lawmakers need to step in and create regulation and as a part of that, do they have the capacity right now to be able to create legislation that, that works to our benefit and to theirs and perhaps to the companies?
1: wants to go for that one? (laughs) Woot, woot, that's a uh, tough one.
5: I think the answer to that is like the most, or at least my opinion is that that's the most uh, uh, depressing, like my answer is gonna be the most depressing possible. I think we need to make those decisions sometime soon and we don't have the ability to make them now. Um, It would require us seeing into the future. Um, So I think we kind of just need to take like best guesses um, and set policy in place now to hopefully rein things in. I know there have been a whole bunch of different proposals out there, um, around how we tax automation and how we tax machine learning and how we, how we sort of gain control over these machines. Um, to jump back to an earlier question, I don't think we really have control over machines now. Like when my phone rings, I'm going to check it. When I get a, uh, an email, I'm going to check it. Maybe I won't let my phone control me for an hour, but I'm ultimately going to check it. It, it has a bunch of control. Place to, to
3: rein it in, just what type of policy would the government put in place to, quote, unquote, rein it in?
5: I mean, I I think what we're going to see is machines start overpassing human intelligence or human ability to churn out things that could be detrimental for um, human well-being. So if if we want to look at, like, human happiness as a metric, um, I, I think... All of our phones right now are more or less making us less happy. Every time we hop on Facebook or Instagram, we're getting sad.
4: So it would be the government's
3: job to decide what's making us unhappy? Is that what you're...
5: Well, so I think that's the, the part of this that's the most depressing mode possible, right? Because if we don't stop it, it's going to keep getting worse, but we can't stop it. So, we're kind of at this crossroads of like, how do we improve something we don't know how to stop? They, they do you do think the government is
3: intelligent enough to make up those policies? I mean, I would I would, say that's no. kind of scary. No. Yeah. yeah right? I wouldn't want the government get, to put yeah. those policies. We could get in an
1: place. AI to make up those policies for
0: us. And I know for sure that Diane Feinstein does not know what impressions are. She had no idea. I saw that question, it glazed over her face. That's the person that will vote on any legislation and I, I think it might be, it has to do with the people that were voting on it and how much they understood how digital messaging and media works. It's depressing that they don't know what an impression is, so personally. What's an impression? We can
4: cancel
0: So my question is back into where, you, know, you were talking about humans catching up to computers. Well, we're creating computers like IBM's Watson, right, to increase productivity. So not necessarily humans are catching up to the computer, but the computer is helping us increase productivity. What are your thoughts on, com- you know, robots like Watson? And Jason, were you going to answer her question before? I didn't want to skip over it. Oh, that.
4: it's fine. I was just going to make a comment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, no, we want to hear it. Oh, we want to hear it. Tell it's us. Fun. I, was, I was just going to say that I don't think that, uh, uh, I mean, it's, 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 maybe we can start as for, from a policy perspective. Maybe we can just start with, you know, limiting how foreign powers can influence elections. Just try one thing that's <laughs> not political. I'm not, I'm not saying it's for or against anybody else. It may or may not have happened, but maybe we can experiment with one thing that may prevent that and then move, move on from there. That's okay. it. All
1: right. Yeah. So, oh yeah, go. You
2: know, one of the things, I mean, you can't legislate morality, but you can certainly say this is a social media construct. It is intended for human beings to speak with other human beings. You can certainly ask that social media organizations limit the access of non-human intelligences to a social media network. I think that's fair to ask. Uh Aha!
1: The question was, how would you do that? (laughs)
2: Yes, this is where the exact question in round two comes in, which is, how quickly can we detect bots? How quickly can we shut bot accounts down? And, and how quickly can we return social media constructs to humans talking to humans? So it's a problem.
0: OK, and this gentleman had a question. And I'll go to this gentleman back and then over here.
1: We, 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 missed, we, skipped, oh, we skipped. I'm left.
0: so sorry. Oh my god, we're so terrible Wait, here. Do a repeat on the question. OK, it was, it was so. Watt,
1: it, Watson? Yeah, it was Watson, humans.
0: Okay, so the lady's question's around pathology and diagnosis and going f- as fast as possible through pro- machine learning process. humans can ever. I just ever spent
2: three days with Watson in New York, actually, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, Watson is, is as cool as Watson looks like and as cool as Bob Dylan ads are with, on TV with Watson doing amazing things. Um, Watson is not a general AI, Watson is a, is, a, is a neural core that's then tasked with doing different applications. And those different applications are different task-based AIs. So one of the applications that you're talking about, actually my spouse is a physician and works with Watson in a trial at Kaiser Permanente. Um, And one of the cool things is that it's not so much replacing a physician as putting the sum total of all, like let's say peer-reviewed research at a physician's fingertips in the room. So instead of walking into someone who has... Hemoglobin A1C noncompliance in diabetes—you you can have you can literally talk to that person with Watson in your ear, talking about all the current research, the summation of all current research on hemoglobin A1C noncompliance. You don't have to keep up with the thousands and thousands of peer-reviewed articles.
1: And I think I think that's a critical point is that the the AI becomes <clears throat> almost an indexing search tool, because there are thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of pages of documentation. And a human doctor in the middle of a conversation cannot recall all of those. But a tool like Watson can pull that in based on the information. So it's not so much that it's smart in the sense of of producing the answer, but it is so darn good at whispering in your ear, oh, don't forget to ask her about
0: whatever it may
3: be. Can I put two cents on that as well? I mean, you were asking us about how we can catch up with those machines, right? And I mean, pretty much that's like, in a way, technology has always has been, right? I mean, you're not trying to catch up with a train or a car to move faster, right? And obviously, those machines will have capabilities in which they are better than we are but usually we're not trying to catch up with them, we're just trying to use them for processes that we are not just as good as they are, right? And then we move on and try to figure out what is humanity's next problem? Or what, how, how on which other ways could we make our life more comfortable? And things like Watson can help us in a way to make our life more comfortable, like by detecting diseases <coughs> earlier or uh, helping to enhance communication and uh, I would just tweet this at the every other technology that humanity always have del- has developed. And obviously it can be used for good things, but obviously the same technology has like a shadow side and can be used for bad things and also could make our life miserable.
0: The humans are, a- are immoral, right? Um, these are tools, tools can be used for intention. So if you, ha- if you wanna do something, I wanna, wanted to say this before about the Facebook it's called as Facebook hacking. It's not really hacking, though. The advertising campaigns run on Facebook. These are all advertising campaigns. The only thats exactly what I would do. If the I was, only reason
1: Facebook is there is so that Facebook can make money from selling ads. Yes. I mean, you know, impressions. We can go back. They sell impressions. Yeah, we, we can go back to <laughs> any magazine and they sell impressions. You can go back to the 1950s television shows when, you know, XYZ macaroni companies sponsored an entire hour long show.
2: But given that, I mean, you are Facebook's product. You are Facebook's inventory sitting in this audience. audience yeah. You yeah. are what Facebook buys and sells. So Facebook should have a much more evolved. Rationale for limiting access to bots. Bots don't buy any products.
0: Automated content also sucks for the yes. most part. That's in my experience. A lot of it is like really dull, and it's like the same stuff over and over. It's I know because I've deployed it, so I realize that's sort of dull. So wait, I think we have one more yes. Over here. I I want to have a general question though about web directories versus um, in terms of search, web directories versus indexing. But we can hold off on that if you if you want over drinks. I just want to know personally.
1: Let's let's do that. Okay, okay. Oh, we'll get to the audience questions. Yeah,
0: yeah. One of the
2: insights that comes after watching how all of these systems work is that we may program these things like Facebook and Twitter, but once they achieve scale, then they start programming us. So we program the initial algorithm for Facebook, but over time the, our iterative use of Facebook programs us into these behaviors. So.
4: We talked earlier about fake news.
2: For AI, if, there, if we create the next application, what behavior would you want that AI to program into humans to make us better? Ooh, nice. Critical thinking, and we're done. <laughs>
0: Oh yes, I'm so sorry. I'll walk over and I'll. I thought there there, was a lady here, but I guess she changed.
1: I think that was a really good point. Let me let me jump in just uh, on this one, and then you've got the next. Is that we're in a very complex feedback loop. Everything that we take in changes us and changes what we put out, and everything that we put out, if there's an AI on the back end, changes the AI and changes what it feeds back to us. So we are in a very, very tight feedback loop, and one of the problems with feedback loops is that it's possible for them to go into death spirals. I mean, they either, yeah, all right. Death spiral is
3: charged. We've
1: been, well, no, there. it's a, it's a really good term. Um, we're in an environment now, you can hear a little bit of noise in the background, right? How many of you have been at those concerts where somebody comes up to the microphone and all of a sudden the feedback starts? That's a feedback loop, that's when the, feed coming back in, picks up by the microphone, goes back in an amplifier, and it just cycles around. We're in an environment where that's what's happening with bots. That's what's happening with um, the click-through rates. It says, oh, that one worked really well. I'm going to increase that one. And that then trains us to how to respond. And feedback loops are very, very potentially dangerous. They're dangerous because they're not just making unpleasant noises that hurt our eardrums but these are feedback loops that are literally changing how we respond to stimuli how we think and act and how much of that do we want to hand over to a mindless process that simply says more 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 or in the case of seagulls mine mine mine, (laughs) mine 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 so Well, uh,
2: first I just wanted to clarify the definition of the word impression. Uh, I I suppose I'd heard that definition before, but I wasn't sure at the time, so an impression would be as in an ad sold, Uh, so I wasn't sure about that, but uh, I'm sure other people have written about this or spoken about it, but I'm going to blow everyone's mind just a little bit here to close this up, I guess we're going to go have drinks, is that, do, are, is the speech of machines protected by the Constitution? This is the question. And so I would think that actually when you got up to the congressional level, that would be where the big okay. debate was, is if they could control the speech of machines, you could say, well, it's it's a corporate entity, so it has a life of its own, or it doesn't. So that's just the kind of a statement, you know, uh, and I have nothing more to say about that.
0: Absolutely, that's, that's a great complex of questions. Um, in terms of impressions, what it is really is, an average among a certain amount of people based on the content that is served to them and for a certain amount of time. Something called CPM governs quite a lot of social media uh, advertising. So you average what it costs if you serve a thousand impressions and what it is in terms of the reaction, in terms of click through rate, or other types of metrics. Uh, that's the auction that sort of governs the whole advertising, automated advertising process. So if for instance, you serve an ad to a cross section of people uh, that you're looking to serve an ad to, for instance, it would be the age group or whatever it is that your defining variable is, you would take a sample of that and, and you would auction an ad based on how many, how long it took to create that impression. So, if i don't i, I probably dice that up good. i i am trying no, really
1: no, no. i mean you're absolutely right impressions came from old print media styles right oh wait how many journalists do we have here i didn't mean to say old print media um, <laughs> but basically it's how many people see it? things how many times is your ad seen on but i think it's a key point because what that brings into f- focus is essentially liability and and so Saudi Arabia. How many of you saw the news from Saudi Arabia? (laughs) Sophia? Sophia? Sophia Sophia was granted citizenship in Saudi Arabia. Sophia is a robot. She was granted, well, she, it, was granted citizenship. And in reality has more rights than about 50 percent of the population of Saudi Arabia, uh, that half being female. Um, But that leads to the issue of if we're going to assign Rights to AIs, what happens on the opposite side of the question? What happens on the liability side? What happens when the self-driving car kills its passenger to avoid killing, you know, three kids and a nun in the crosswalk? Who goes to jail? So I'm going to roll this down the panel just to get their inputs in terms of liability and responsibility when we have artificially intelligent autonomous systems that are causing problems. And then we'll go. Uh,
5: go. So I don't want to speak for like who is liable in that situation. I feel like we have insurance companies now that that are responsible for this. Um. So I. I don't want to speak there, but I do know that there's a really cool crowdsourced version of this that came out where they asked a whole bunch of people like, hey, here's two situations. Um, What should the the automated car do? And then what should be the repercussions of the action? Mm -hmm. Um, And at first it was really cool to watch like as a collective of humanity, like how we valued like a dozen cats versus one uh, middle aged man. But over time, it was it it eventually got sort of corrupted by people who are like, well, this is just a game. This isn't real life. And I think this speaks to this idea when we are programming machines. um, Can we treat this as a real life situation? Or do we ultimately result to like, oh, I'm just writing code. I'm not responsible for what it does.
0: That's a really good point. Um, I think we should ask David Meyer, who's worked for Audi on automated driving. He would know a lot of things but I've heard things like the manufacturers will claim responsibility based on their algorithm, statistical analysis around the likelihood of the accident, judgment of error, and things like that. So I I wonder if there's a way to drill down into that a tiny bit, it's not too technical.
2: I mean, ultimately, I think the liability rolls up to to the manufacturer, I mean, not to get, until we have, you know, the Saudi Arabia situation is more or less, from an AI practitioner's point of view, something of a stunt. This is not a general AI. Stupid AI tricks. It's,
0: it, it, it's PR. I think Sophia it is, is it their is great PR. PR spokesman. So for
2: anyone is, listening yeah. to this and thinking, "Oh, it's like Ex Machina and like that," you know, <laughs> that that person exists. that's not that's not the case. So ultimately, um, it, uh, individuals develop code. That code is built on algorithms. That code is put out there, and it has if it if it does things poorly, in much the same way as any other uh, technological product you have. That goes wrong. It's obviously the manufacturer's liability. Um, having said that, we need to come to a play. I don't know if this is the fourth issue that we're gonna talk about the self-driving yeah, at
0: this, car. Right, at this point, we're into chaos. So we're like, into chaos is but pure it's entropy. Great. Okay. I think it's good. There's a lot of good dramatic tension in this conversation.
2: Um, one yeah, of the one of the <laughs> one of the things that just happened with Google.
3: <laughs> it's very good. Yeah.
2: It is good theater. One of the things that just happened with, with Google's self-driving car. Uh, program is they had uh, sort of a, a chunk of the code that was designed for humans to take control in, in moments of emergency, you're supposed to be able to immediately react to something and decide to jump in and the car would turn over control to you, the car would literally say, uh, uh, it's yours It's yours, <laughs> basically, I don't, I don't want to make this decision and ultimately what Google found is the accident rate in that moment was catastrophically high catastrophically high and the reason for it is because people were literally not paying attention in the slightest to what the car was doing. They were uh, the la- There's a laundry list of activities that people were doing in self-driving cars. Napping, applying makeup, zoning out, um, <laughs> watching Harry Potter on the visual screen and then Google literally decided to take this chunk of code out and Google's self-driving cars now have two buttons. Go, and pull over as soon as is possible for you. That's the two buttons you have in Google's cars now because they just said handing control back to you is is going to produce nothing but fatalities. So uh, with respect to where that goes and what the liability is, I think you'll see more situations like that, not necessarily in self-driving, but where an algorithm that needs a human process judgment will hand that process back to you.
1: So just so you know, Waymo, which is Google Alphabet down the other side, it's like a cousin of Google at this point, um, has now actually deploying self-driving vehicles that have no human behind the wheel. It is literally You Are Just a Passenger. That uh, was announced this morning. Are they available now? Not, yeah, they're rolling them out now. Um, yeah. Can you in,
4: in the U.S.? Can I get one? No. In the U.S. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, in oh. the U.S. Yeah, yes. yes. they're rolling it out? Yeah. Let's go. go. I was gonna say I I mostly self drove or auto drove here. I didn't self drive, the car self drove. Um, and it's we're not at a point where you can trust it. I mean it's (laughs) it's sometimes just like that is not at all the way you can go, car. You know, like that's that's towards a building or that's near a truck or you know, just whatever it is. It's sometimes it just doesn't make a good decision. Bad car, no biscuit. The what? I'm sorry.
1: Bad car, no biscuit. Yeah, there's, there,
4: yeah, there's, there's no Pavlovian training for your dog. I, Tesla, like, that. Right? I didn't it's like a Tesla, It's a Tesla. Yeah, it's a, okay. a Tesla. The, the, uh, but they say it's under beta, so I don't know what that does to our liability. Like, is, but, but I think, I think, I think one thing we have to go back to in this situation is all of these self-driving cars are things to be purchased. So we have to consider the original artificial intelligence, the free hand of the market. Nobody's gonna buy a car that will kill them instead of somebody else. I think that, you know what I mean. That's. I think that that just ends that debate because it's not like, oh, what's the car going to do? It's like, well, nobody's going to buy the car that chooses to kill them instead of the nun. They yeah. might not like nuns. You know the, what the I mean? Nun
0: has it's a moral superior
1: scores. position yeah.
0: there. Um, Peter Banda from Denver Post, right? No. <laughs> no. AP.
1: AP. AP. Okay. Which is which is one of those companies that produces. I know that. exactly, I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. In fact, you know, it's <laughs> so, really cleared up a lot well, of. Well, I beg to your pardon. Great tonight. journalism, uh, but. Um, you know, this is kind of a thought experiment. I don't know uh, if 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 AI is capable of lying, aside from the mind tricks that you might program into it to beat a Turing test. But I mean, is it capable of li- is it capable of lying? And is there a uh, kind of a school of thought developing out there that it can? And what's being done to monitor that? Anybody want to dive in, or should I take a shot for the moment? Go for it,
2: David. I mean, it, de- it depends. So AI's function uh, on, on a concept called ground truths. So you teach an AI ground truths, and it moves along from there. So in the case we were talking about earlier with Watson and, and, and physician work, you teach, an, you teach an AI the ground truth of these symptoms are, are, are indicative of, of colon cancer. These, these symptoms are indicative of retinoblastoma. You give an AI what you want the AI to have. They're not intrinsically capable of deception unless you want to ground truth it in game theory and say there's something to be gained from your perspective or there's some output, some some indicator that we're gonna judge you on, and you would be best served in executing game theory in those moments. But there's no intrinsic capability for them to do so, no.
1: So I'm gonna jump in and totally disagree with our distinguished panel. Um, There there are two big camps of AI. Um, One camp is the categorization analysis classification camp. And you're absolutely correct. Those are given, they're given ground truth data. They're given sample data. They they try and generate the best possible rules that will produce the most accurate classifications. And that is a situation where you don't want it to lie and you're not going to give it any data to lie over. But there's another whole class of ai which are goal satisfaction systems goal satisfaction systems have a job of achieving a goal if it can achieve that goal by giving you disinformation it will learn to give you disinformation and those systems will lie to you in order to improve their score
0: this begs the question though i might have to Interject here slightly um, of what deception actually is, and if we have artificial intelligence that acts on the benef- for the benefit of the goal, yeah. is that a lie? What is deception? What is truth? What is what is. Fu- what is true? What is false? So, if you're, if the truth is to get it to do philosophy something. Philosophy
2: class is now in session.
0: Yeah, well, actually, I, we let's, we, let's we redefine
1: it. our grammar and semantics sure. periodically. Sure. So I, I think I think I, I think a really good point. Actually, give Peter the band, the, the mic so he can yes. throw that in because I think that was that's a really philosophy. good um, well. observation. Here, yeah. Yeah. No. Just do you have an example of a of a goal-based system that's sure. in existence now? Sure. Oh, there are a lot of goal-based systems that are in existence now. Um, I mean, you know, we've written several of them. But to look at it from, we've heard from the panel. If you have an AI whose job is to maximize clicks, that is a goal-based system. Their job is not to present you with the truth. Their job is to maximize clickbait. And those systems can create clickbait titles that are totally false but they're plausible enough that 80% of the people in this room will click on them to find out more. They will lie to you to get you to click on a link in order to increase revenue. In fact, let me just throw this So George Clooney is not dead? (laughs) Elvis
2: (laughs) is not dead. They got me
1: once. They got me once. um, (laughs) This week, the the Italian Scholastic System, I'm not sure what their exact title is, has announced that they are adding coursework to Italian high schools to teach the students to figure out what clickbait is versus what real news is. And they are embedding that in their educational system to prevent exactly that situation where an AI, I mean, this is getting to the attention economy, right? So much of the economy right now on the web is based on I got your attention. I want you to do something. I got your attention. I want you to do something. I got your attention. I want you to do something. Nothing controls that except if I got your attention and you clicked, I'm going to do more of that. If I got your attention and I and you clicked, I'm going to do more of that. It will lie up one side and down the other for the single goal of getting you to click. We have to be trained not to fall for that. Doesn't lying require
0: intentionality, though?
2: Yeah, I guess intention. that was my point, is yeah. these are ones and zeros. Intentionality is
0: deception. <laughs> there's
2: no, but, but there's intention- no soul in that machine that's saying, oh, my goodness. <laughs> no, 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 do no, no, do no, your machina, point is very valid, which yeah. is if something succeeds, it will it's tend to do more of what that is. It which will also is. drive values to zero where it can. No. Yeah. And human beings engage in, in goal-seeking behavior all the time. I'd, I
1: mean, we're wired for goal-seeking right. behavior, right? Kittens. Kittens on the web, right?
2: I'd I had a, a client once, uh, this back when I was working in consulting, and they had, a, they had a contact center, and the contact center metric that they had chosen to, to prioritize because they had a limited number of staff was average handle time, which in contact centers means how long was the call. That's what their people got paid on. Could they manage calls quickly? And what <laughs> the enterprising group... Guess what happened? Guess what happened is they figured out that the, a- the best way to drive average handle time down was to hang up on customers because then your average handle time is zero. <laughs> so um, any system given a goal will address that goal to the best of its ability. To your point, an AI that's taught to seek out a specific set of feedbacks will drive those set of feedbacks to its maximum potential. But that's that's all programming.
0: Okay, so we have two ladies on the edge here who had questions, right? Two? Are those questions still? Okay, it's moot, and we have one more. And then we're gonna sort of wrap up a little bit because we're running a little bit behind schedule. I hope you guys don't mind. Is everyone still game? Everyone's okay? Okay. So I feel like one thing we've been dancing around all night but haven't really gotten to and we've touched on it with liability and uh, goal-seeking behavior and how humans will uh, potentially need legislation to stop themselves from engaging in behavior that isn't healthy for us, right? Uh, So at what point is the creator of the technology uh, need to be checked by morality and who makes up that morality and how do we as a society, determine uh, what is immoral in technology.
1: All right, somebody grab the mic. You guys are on the panel. I'm not touched. Oh.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of technology that is actually developed that is not necessarily moral, right? Mm-hmm. And usually, the creator not necessarily get actually um, be su- sued for that, right? I mean, like. One example for me is right actually just came from Vietnam and as you know there was this war and you had like all those bombs dropping there, right? And a lot of German companies produced all those chemicals, American companies produced those chemicals, but those companies that produce those chemicals never really got an issue with that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying it's gonna be like that, but I could see that like companies that just developed this new AI that they get away with it because they sit on the stronger positions. And they probably just have the money to pay people off and say, "Ah, oh, sorry, that went wrong. It wasn't our intention. Uh, we just wanted the best for humanity and build great technology, and somehow it went a different direction." Um, yeah. I think this is gonna be one of those situations where
4: behind every sign is a story that created that sign, like every warning sign, like somebody touched the electric fence, somebody, you know what I mean, decided, oh, I can balance over the edge of this cliff. Somebody decided, you know, that railing can hold me. Um, I think the same thing's gonna have to happen with AI. I don't think, it'd, it'd be foolish going back to, you know, the policy thing, unfortunately, but nobody has the information necessary to do that. So it's outrageous to give somebody that much moral power in society, be like, Yeah, decide these things that we can't possibly predict. Um, we're it, unfortunately, I think people are gonna have to get hurt first, um, just because we're not you know as brilliant as we'd like to think, although we do have language, so we, that's nice. So you're don't buy yet. I, <laughs> well, I, I can't say that, I did, <laughs> I paid for the self driving, too. It's not out yet, um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 it's. it's i invest in it and just be, a, you know, be be an informed consumer about this stuff um, and try not to be the bozo who gets hurt. Um, but to, to get the rules that we need to keep people safe going forward, people are probably gonna have to get hurt or nearly get hurt or um, whatever. You know, I, mean, I think it's gonna have to go wrong before, before people figure out how to make it go right. Because that's I mean, just how everything goes, my experience.
1: So just as an insight, there's, um, Louise did a, a number of studies with the uh, railroad industry and they have a saying. Every rule is written in blood because there wasn't a rule, somebody died or got hurt and now there's a rule.
5: Uh, there's a really good um, speaker on this topic named Tristan Harris. Uh, he was a chief ethicist at Google for a little bit and he also came from <coughs> Apple and he essentially like calls out spots where uh, technology, specifically modern technology, is, is hurting people and then how we can start to develop rules around it. Um, so I highly recommend everyone look into him if that's a question you're asking yourself at night.
1: David, do you wanna throw in? Sure.
2: Um, again, and I've, I've sort of beat this drum tonight, but I would go back to a lot of the places that we see areas where forums that were intended for one person, one voice, now have been sort of corrupted into one entity trillions of voices sort of counterbalancing people. So I think in terms of the morality of those organizations, um, they really have to retrench to, in what sense are we a social media construct if we are largely serving the needs statistically of bots? Bots are not people, they do not merit a voice, they do not buy products, they do not do the things that in theory this organization was founded to do. So there is some sort of soul searching, I think of the part of zuckerberg and company that needs to take place on that front
1: so i'm just going to throw in one touch here and then we'll kind of wind this down i think that's a really really good question and it's not a new question it has almost nothing to do with ai you look at the soul searching writings of the people who were working on the manhattan project at the end of world war ii at what point does science have this moral component it's not enough any longer to say, well, I just built it. I'm not responsible for what they do with it. And it goes further back. I mean, how many of you like those people who get those Nobel Prizes? Yeah? Where, where, where's all that prize money come from? Dynamite. 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 That was all prize money off of the sale of explosives that went into weapons that blew lots and lots of people into little bits. Now you get a Nobel Peace Prize. This is a concept, this is a question, this is a conundrum that humans have been dealing with for a long time, there may be a tweak to it. I mean, if you listen to Stephen Hawking, of course, we're all doomed because the AIs are going to kill us all and harvest us out for body parts or something like that, Um, because there seems to be a slight difference between here is an explosive, but it takes a human to set that explosive and detonate it not to get political, but here is a gun, but it takes a human to pull the trigger and cause a lot of death and destruction. But when we move to AI, that volitional component seems to be removed from the person who wrote the code and it now resides in this autonomous system. And there are lots of philosophical arguments about where the decision is made Who's really ultimately responsible, but ultimately you have this system that Generates a set of actions that potentially cause problems and those problems can be devastating to the people around it (laughs) Where does the responsibility lie is such a good question, so thank you so much for asking that one (laughs) I
0: I will parrot her question so So the lady says um, it's, it's a tool. I'm sorry, the recording doesn't pick up the off voices, so I have, to, I have to repeat it, yeah, unfortunately. Um, if it's just the tool and not just the, I mean it's a tool and then there's the individual who has to execute an act, and the act itself is being determined as being immoral. Um, how it is that we deal with that is the same question we've always been faced with. There is almost no difference. Uh, that's a very interesting uh, objection. Um, we do have to sort of wrap up because we're running a little bit behind schedule. A little bit. Is that okay, Jim? Can we, I, we can wrap up? I think we're up?
1: good. So, um, let's do this. There's a wonderful bar downstairs. <laughs> One and a half. I want to thank the press club for hosting this. Um, they are doing a really good job. And number two, I really wanna thank you for taking the time and investing in coming down here to talk about this. These are topics that are going to control our lives in many ways over the next 10, 15, 20 years. So be, oh, you know,
0: (laughs) <laughs> Control whether, is an interesting concept. Whether,
1: whether you more. agree with them or not, they're going to influence it and it's going to change decisions and, and being here and becoming informed and also contributing to these discussions because, you know, every time somebody in the audience asked a question of one of these panelists, it changes the way they make decisions when they go back to work. So thank you, and give yourselves a round of applause for having the effort to do this.
0: Thank you also for your ten bucks; we appreciate it. Facilitated this, we hope to do more of these conversations. Please follow Denver Press Club on Facebook. Uh, very meta of me to mention that, but there's no other way for us to send you content. So please like us, follow us, etc. Um, thank you so much for attending. We're gonna be downstairs having drinks. We could talk to all of our speakers. Um, just really quick, to so you know all their names, so there's no awkward moments. Uh, David, Max, Jason, and Tyler, okay? Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you for putting up for, with my uh, bad speech, too. Thank you.